Principal Matters Podcast, episode 268. Hi, friends. This is Will Parker, host of Principal Matters, the school leaders podcast, where each week we bring you inspiring, innovative, and imaginative ideas for your own school leadership. This week, we're talking about equity, equality, and systems with my special guest, Enid Lee. Enid Lee is a frontline educator and anti-racist professional development specialist, leadership coach, writer, and community builder. She began her joyful journey as a teacher on the Caribbean island of Antigua about five decades ago, and she has taught in Canada and the United States. Today, Enid consults internationally on equitable education with particular emphasis on language, race, and culture and their roles in education. She engages members of school communities, families, and community organizations in preparing all learners to create and experience a world with greater justice, joy, and generosity. She is the author of several publications and books and the recipient of several awards for her pathbreaking work in anti-racist education and community building among Black communities and immigrant parents. She received an honorary doctors of law from Queen's University, Canada, and holds an interdisciplinary master's of arts in sociolinguistics and Caribbean literature. And she's a virtual scholar with Teaching for Change in Washington, D.C. In real time, she shares time between Santa Cruz, California and Toronto, Ontario. Enid Lee, welcome to Principal Matters Podcast. I always like to ask my guests to fill in the gaps on that introduction. And why don't you also tell us something that might surprise listeners to know about you? Well, thank you very much for inviting me. And it might surprise um, listeners to know that I like reading children's books um, in between my travels to schools and so forth. I like sitting outside and reading books for children because it um, nourishes the child in me. And that's one of my joys. Oh, I just love that. And I mentioned this in a recent podcast, and you and I can see each other through the video of our conversation. But just recently, I picked up a copy of The Rough Patch by Brian Lies. And what a comforting book to read about difficulty and loss. There's just something about children's books that just resonate with the heart in ways that no other books. And so I, I'm um, I'm actually beginning to build a list of other ones that I want to collect because that used to be something I enjoyed as a parent was sitting and just holding a child and reading that book. So what are some of your favorites? Oh my goodness. I favorites is kind of hard to say because there's so many, but right now I'm looking at one that's just brand new and it's called Our Skin, A First Conversation About Race. And it is a one of those books that you can see it's for little kids. It the way you know it's it's those sort of stand up hard hard pages so they can bear being thrown around the room and be tucked under couches and what have you. But this book just talks about what it's like to live in the skin we're in and how you talk about that if you're a little kid and so forth. So that's just one of the what that's what happens to be right on the desk here oh, in front of our me. skin. And who and who wrote that book? Yes, that book is by Megan Madison, Jessica Raleigh, and Isabel Rocas. Wonderful. And, yes, and I actually happened to meet Megan Madison in um 
a couple of a few two years ago at a conference, and so I was particularly interested when I saw that she was on it. Yes, and so well, a first conversation about race. Yeah. Well, thank you for that for sharing that recommendation, Principal Matters mm-hmm. listeners. I will put a link to both of those books, The Rough Patch and Our Skin, yeah. in the show notes if you want to refer to those and check out those books yourself. Yeah. Well, Enid, it is such a privilege to sit in this room with you, and we connected because we both work with uh, with other leaders, and one of the leaders I work with had recommended that I reach out to you because of the work that you've been doing so wonderfully with his own school and teachers and students. And as I've looked at your work, I just have to say, first of all, thank you for the decades that you have dedicated to the work of equity in schools. And I just wanted to begin by asking you, when you define equity, equality, and systems, you encourage educators to build on strengths. Why is why is that an important distinction for you of building on strengths? One of the main reasons is that um, discrimination of all kinds tend to hide the strengths of many people and their communities, things we know about, things we care about, things we can do. And so one of the ways of reaching to an equitable situation is to restore and to make public and to uncover the many, many things people People and communities and individuals know how to do, but have that those things have been discounted. Those things have been laid aside. For instance, language, languages that people have and the knowledge that knowledge that goes with it, the lived experience of so many of our students, you know, the um, wisdom of communities that get sidelined because of who holds those, who holds that wisdom. So the main, so one of the key things is restoring our strengths, reminding people of all that they can know, they know they're able to do and can do, and how that helps us reach where we want to go. In fact, it's a loss if we don't uncover those. So working with administrators, you know, when people ask me to work with them, they usually lay out what is a challenge, what needs addressing. And I generally go first with, let's talk about what is it that even the most difficult people are able to do? What are things that they know already? And even working with administrators, if when they're in a place of, we can't change it, I say, let's do with the list of what you can do, what is known and so forth. And that as a practical matter, it makes a difference. Well, what I love about that distinction, Enid, is, and and you and I have talked before, so this is just so fun to sit in the room and and be able to record this conversation. But what I love about that distinction is the emphasis that you have on strengths, because you're right, if you begin with the challenge first, then I think you're missing an opportunity. And, And there's a couple of things. One is the emphasis on strength brings us back to the shared humanity that all of us have. Um, and then second, I think the emphasis on strength helps us to think positively about the conversations that we're having. Take a moment and apply that to the classroom, because if you're working with students, for instance, and you're trying to help them understand a better mindset for equity, how does building on strength help you in your relationships to students? Well, first of all, they, um, I, it leaves me with more to work with. It leaves us to, with more to work with. And a question that I would ask is, what have you done so far? That just that question, what have you done so far? And it doesn't matter what it is, whatever it is, we are going to work with that. Even moving schools through the you know, stages of multicultural anti-racist education, you know, if they have done only the festival foods and so forth, I would say, okay, now that shows you're ready for the next level. And so it, it allows me and allows us to have a place 
to move forward. And it embraces strengths, knowledge, wisdom, goodwill that people have not taken into account. And this is, I would say, in every situation, it has worked. Even when people say, that, I don't know, we haven't done anything. I say, let's think hard about it. Let's think about one thing that you have done or that person has done or that group has done and see how we can move forward. Mm. Well, and I, what I love about that too, from the perspective of an educator, with whether that's with children or adults, is that you're building towards the vision that you're creating is building towards improvement together. So I'm not here to, to confront you on where you're weak. I'm actually here to, to help you discover where you're strong. Yes. And in the process, you're going to figure out where you're weak right. and, and, then, and then help build on that as, as well. Like, for instance, just visiting classrooms, I go in to look at opportunities that are hidden and that the teacher hasn't quite seen, but they're there. And then when we're debriefing, we can talk about that. I really want to take an opportunity to just explore some history with you, Enid. And first of all, the legacy that you've carried for um, equity and education has been so powerful. And, you know, most of the listeners that are listening to the show today were either not born or they were children when you started teaching in 1967. And so I just wanted to say, take us back. You know, most educators maybe don't know, except in their in their own experience as educators, what the work for anti-racism and ed- equity have been through um, through our schools. So what changes have you observed in education at large through your five decades of, of career? And what challenges do you still see? So to be honest, and I try to be honest, I would not say that I could, I know exactly what the changes have been. And to, in 1967, I definitely was not using the word anti-racist. I would say from my knowledge of the, the field, it, it, it came much more into being in 1984, that particular term. And I was living in Canada at the time when that came into being. And when I started re- teaching, I was in Antigua in the Caribbean. Um, so I, I, I don't want to pretend that I have that uh, wide knowledge of what it was for everyone. But here are some things that I remember about being a teacher in 1967 in an island that was just moving into independence after British colonialism. The challenge to work for a new, to help create a new nation, uh, your own nation. I mean, we had a teacher who said to us, this is your chance to show how it's going to be in your own. And that's, that's exciting. And I would say the 60s, wherever you were, had some of that in it. It was struggle, civil rights, and so forth, you know. So that sense of possibility, is, I would say, certainly marked those early years. Possibility, enthusiasm, and bravery, and sometimes bravery around what you, you really didn't know what you were getting into. What is that? But I want to just say that I regard anti-racist practice as any of the times that teachers, um, community leaders challenged the system to make it more fair and more just to, for those who were in it, even if they weren't using that term, so that people who introduced material about communities that were missing from the curriculum those who worked for access to proper resources and so forth. So that's been there, even when it wasn't named. And I would say one of the key 
and we and there have been moments when that work has made a difference in who's learned and who's learned well and for instance in the 70s we saw changes in what happened with african-american students because some of the things changes positive changes in terms of achievement gaps but today i would say the situation is more complex um one of the things i would note is that when I started doing anti-racist work in 84, the focus was almost exclusively on race in my own work. Now, as I do this work, it's much more intersectional. I still have race at the center, but we take up questions of gender, of um, gender expression, and so forth. So I think the intersectionality is a piece that's different and makes it richer. From my point of view, it also engages other people and so forth. The second piece is looking at how some of the structures that people fought for outside are now inside of institutions. And so it's, you know, it, you could say it goes deeper. The thing with things becoming part of institutions is that they can be co-opted and corrupted. That's the other thing you have to look at too, that people rename, people capture names, but they actually have a different meaning for it. So vigilance around what is actually being done who is being served? How is this helping students? That's one of the things that I think I, I realize I have to keep doing, you know, not because someone says this is anti-racist, that it means it's that. It could be confirming racist practices, but the name hides it. So those are things that for me are always in my mind. Thank you for that explanation. I'm curious too, if you see access and privilege and, and sometimes class as some of those categories too that you that you step when you step into talk conversations on systems yeah, absolutely um because the the whole question of um who has privilege based on class race gender what have you that's to be noted and what i encourage when people when people identify that they have a particular privilege, you know, and they'd say, yes, I'm say, speaking of it from my privileged position. I encourage us to move from the notion of privilege to rights. Things that are your privilege, really, you, we need to be working for them so they become everyone's rights. See, so it just noting that you have privilege isn't enough. So the question is, what are you going to do about that to make sure that those who by virtue of their race, who by class, gender, don't have access to those things, who are not represented in certain um, levels of the system, in certain AP classes, and so on. So I like to work with when people say, um, you know, it, it's a privilege, and I say, yes, and what are you going to do about it? And usually I say, and what are we going to do about it? Because I see this very much as a collaborative effort, you know? Um, and, and, and people have been able to move forward when I say we, when I work with administrators or anyone i'd say well so what are we going to do about this situation you know so that that's one of the ways that i've approached the work in you know that i office in the tulsa oklahoma area mm -hmm. which you know the history of tulsa for those who are not familiar the tulsa race massacre that took place here 100 years ago has played a significant role in the history of our state but you know when i was a young teacher there were very few schools actually teaching that history how does why is it so important for us to 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 reclaim some of the narratives that have been hidden in our history to better understand our current positions as we educate students i, I i'm so glad you mentioned that because 
anti-racist work must be grounded in the history, both of the oppression and of the struggle, both history of oppression, history of resistance. And if we don't have that perspective from history, we cannot sometimes understand why we are where we are. That's one. So there is no direction that's that can be followed. And also it prevents us from seeing what else happened at the time and that is possible to build on, you know? So history is absolutely essential in looking at the laws, the structures that were in place that led to certain outcomes, you know, and also people coming together in communities to respond and for it to change. So without history, anti-racist education is pretty shallow and you're going to keep repeating the same mistakes. And it also perhaps leaves you thinking, well, it has to be this way. Well, history allows you to realize it doesn't have to be this way. It's this way because we made it this way and we can unmake it, you know? that. So that's why history for me is very hopeful. And I think about work by people like Vincent Harding with that book, Hope and History, where you get a sense of what can be done. Yeah. Let me give you some personal example yeah. of, of how history can help sometimes reform your perspectives. I was, and this is a personal story. Last week, I was back home visiting my parents who live in West Tennessee. And we grew up in very rural farmland in a, um, in a school that was highly populated with Title I students free and reduced lunches. And, and our family was one of those families too. Um, but I was going through some old yearbooks that my mom and dad keep from their school years and from my school years. And I was looking back at my school books, which from the 19, early 1970s, we went to a small rural school, which was integrated. So I had classmates who were black and white, mm-hmm. but at that age in my life, I had very little understanding that that was novel, that the, the parents of the my classmates had not had that experience themselves. In fact, I pulled out my mom and dad's yearbooks from the late 1950s. And as I was flipping through them from the perspective of 52-year-old Will Parker, it was the first time in my life that I recognized, and I've looked through my mom and dad's yearbooks for several other years in the past, just for fun to see their photos. But it dawned on me for the first time ever in my adult life that there were no black people in their school. And when I, when I mentioned that to them, of course, it wasn't a surprise to them, but it was a surprise to me to recognize that how short of a time span in the history of our nation's schools, we've seen these shifts. And I think sometimes for those of us that have grown up after segregation, after desegregation, that we don't always understand the dynamics generationally or historically that have existed. And without the understanding of those historical moments, we sometimes forget what may be right in front of us too, in terms of the leftovers of some of those systems that are still ingrained in the communities among us. So I just wanted to give you that example, because I think sometimes just being aware allows you to see some things that maybe you haven't seen before. Yes, I I appreciate that because, and I like the use of the word, the leftovers, because many times when we're working in schools now and we don't understand where these leftovers come from, we um, don't know what to do. But a historical perspective lets us understand where they came from. For instance, parents maybe not trusting the school because of the leftovers. Do you know what I'm saying? Or administrators thinking, well, maybe they really can't do that work if I hire them. 
you know, because of the leftovers. And I like that term. It's checking on your leftovers. That, that's a good one to encourage and administrate. Leftovers, and they're leftovers. You didn't leave them, but if you ignore them, you're going to perpetuate injustice, limited access, and limitation to our humanity. Mm -hmm. So let's stay there for just a moment, Enid Lee. And this is one of those conversations that has so many nuances. But recently, in our state, for instance, where we live, there's been a lot of pushback, even from the state legislature, on how you can even have conversations about race within school communities. And I think it's created a lot of confusion because I've even heard people that have said things like, well, if you try to reinterpret the history of our nation from a certain perspective, then maybe you're misunderstanding um, the founding of our nation, or maybe you're trying to reshape the perspective that our kids have where they no longer honor and respect our nation. And, and so speak to that for a moment, because I know that when you're working with schools, you hear those same tensions, but the goal of your work I know is, is perspective on building on strength. So help us, help us weave that, that, that nuanced conversation for a moment. Yes. I'm glad you've brought it up and I'm glad you brought it up in that way because it allows us to think about what's what we really want to have happen through education. And if widening our perspective is not one of those things, then I don't know what is. So I, I encourage teachers to deal with this question that's bubbling over the nation within the context of what schools are for. That, that's first thing. So it's not as if you've gone out and done something that's not part of your role. If students have no opportunity to widen their perspective and then make an assessment about what it is they're looking at, then we have denied them an essential um, experience. So that's the first thing. And the question as to whether they will reinterpret it, they might. And they will also understand the pieces that they have known before, because when you put um, you know, visions alongside each other, you get more understanding of what you think you know about yourself. So any exploration of that will help you to understand what you thought you always knew, you know, and you will simply have a, a wider perspective of it. And within that reinterpretation, we will find a whole range of possibilities that we didn't know existed. You know, that, we, for instance, that example you shared about the yearbook, right? I'm sure if we were able to dig around, you would find out how that yearbook came to look different in the next year. Like what had to happen? Who had to make representation at the district? Who had to risk their children's um, engagement in an area that may have been a little challenging or frightening or threatening? So opening up perspective. And if I, I would say to um, parents, to anyone who is questioning these is the nature of this world is for us to learn more about so that we can get a closer sense of really who we are, you know? And that's, I would encourage that. And when people say, well, are you doing such and such? I said, tell me what you think I'm doing. And then we'll go from there. Because a lot of times people think you're doing something that you're not doing. And so let's start with what they think it is and then we can clarify. And one of the things that I've always done is encourage parents to tell me what they're hearing with, from their kids. You know, So when they talked about this at home, what did they tell you? Because I want to know so we can build that into our teaching. 
Oh, that's so good. I'll add one other anecdote. My son just finished reading. He's a high school sophomore and he just finished reading Fahrenheit 451 for yes. class, you know, which was written in the fifties, but it was, a, of course, the idea that someday we would be censoring materials and, and, and taking things away from history, et cetera. And he was just shocked. He was like, um, dad, this book was like, pretty on target for the things that we, even like with the kind of technologies that would distract us from facts and from history and from literature. And so as educators, I just want to, I just want to also speak to the listeners that are listening to us talk right now too. There's just, education is always about creating awareness and understanding and, and analysis and introducing us to ideas that expand the way that we think. And that's why we became educators. And so the idea that, that any, any government body, for instance, would try to limit the access that students have to information so that they can make their own informed decisions, to me, is alarming. And so I just want to encourage any educators out there to stay courageous. Uh, not and, and by being courageous, I don't mean to be unwise, but just be courageous in the fact that your students and your faculty deserve access to conversations that expand the way that they think so that they can be better engaged in the kids and the students whom they're teaching. And so awareness should, should create more opportunities for us to expand the way that we treat each other with, with kindness and with inclusiveness and with opportunity. And so you know, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but I, I just wanted to say th- those things. Any other thoughts on that before yeah. I transition? Yeah, and just also to be open to what parents have to say to us about what their children are hearing and experiencing. Also being open to letting them know what it is that our intent is and say, is this what, what's being said? Is this what's coming across? You know? And so, so in a way that can decrease the defensiveness, you know, because I would like to know what is it that they told you they understood and taking it from there. And these are challenging times, but, but courage is important and remembering what we are doing, remembering that closing the doors of our mind will only leave us into greater distress and darkness, you know, and that the possibility of learning, of, of, of opening up, of understanding is what we want. Wow. Okay, Principal Manners listeners, I want you to just rewind that last 30 seconds and listen to that amazing wisdom from Enid Lee. Enid, I I just also want to ask you, you focus a lot on systems when you're addressing equity and learning. So talk talk to us about why that's so important to you. I I deliberately um, think about systems in both large and small settings. You know, generally one speaks about the system, the education system, the economic system, the global system, those policies, procedures, and arrangements that work together, that make things happen. And we tend to forget that those patterns are also present in our classrooms, in our departments, in the school and the district. And they're connected, in fact, they often mirror the larger systems of the society. And, you know, sometimes we think that system is so big, I cannot get my arms around it. So I like to start with the systems that we can get our arms around. What ways do you have in a regular, um, thoughtful way that you do your greetings in classrooms? How you select those who participate, how you select the material and so forth. So I call those small procedures and arrangements that are habitually present in our rooms 
uh, systems, those systems. And then I look at how those are mirrored in the larger society, you know, how people, how students are assessed. What do I assess? Even if the major form of assessment is standardized testing, what other systems do you have in place that allow us to see what students know and can do? And how do we put those together? And how do we use those systems to influence the larger patterns? And I'm delighted to know that I hear more and more people talking in schools about the systems in their classroom, in their department, in their school and so forth, because that is eventually going to let us see how things are connected. Enid, pause for just a moment. I just lost your audio. Yes, we, we got disconnected. I can hear you clearly. So let me, let me, let's just finish up that question. So uh, Enid, as you were, um, it interrupted you in the moment where you were talking about um, how those systems look in classrooms. Yes. I don't know if you want yes. to pick up that thought from there. Yes. So I go from what I call from greetings to grading from the moment a student um, comes in, how we, 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 we welcome them. You know, I'm just thinking of a situation I heard recently of a student who had been suspended. And this teach part of the teacher's system is when the student comes back, the first thing he says to the student, I'm glad you're back. I'm glad you're with us. And the difference that makes in the student just settling in, the other students accepting the person and the individual being able to get to work. You know, just, I mean, and that's, just, and you might think, well, what system is in that? That's a procedure, that's an arrangement, that's a practice that is regularly followed. And then that's followed by other things in terms of engagement, in terms of get, helping to get caught up and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And if you think about just that system on a global level, you know, from being a new person in the district, a new person in the country, right? A new person in the world coming in, whatever condition you're coming in, how you are received has a lot to do with what you're able to offer, what we're able to, what you're able to show us that you know and participations. And so I take it from that greeting right through to the um, borders of the country. So, okay. So, and then we, we look at how those things could be put in place across a school so that every person in the school can have that, you know, and that kind of, of small thing. It's a small thing, but it's a system, you know. Yeah. Well, and what I appreciate about that so much is, um, if, and, and for listeners, I really want you to think and reflect for just a moment. Sometimes I don't think we even recognize the ways that we influence systems until we can step back a little bit, but the, just yeah. something as simple as, I'm glad you're here, creates a welcoming environment for every student. I can remember in my own practice, recognizing just because of the research that often in class discussions, teachers tend to call on boys more than girls, um, or sometimes they may even ignore without even recognize it. They may even ignore calling out participation from, from minority students that are present too. And so just being aware of that and then, and then purposefully shifting the way that you call on students, purposely shifting the way that you seat students, purposely yeah. asking for more feedback from those quieter students. It creates an environment where students feel respected and where you're raising the dignity of all the students yeah. that you're serving. And I also like the application you make to not only should we be doing that in classrooms, but we should do that school-wide and mm -hmm. system-wide. So for instance, yeah. if you're sharing a newsletter are you representing all of the students and, and the, and the 
is the representation of all of your school community being involved in, in the way you're mm-hmm. sharing about mm-hmm. your schools. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that is so very true. Well, Enidly, I want to wrap up this conversation with one final question. And this question actually came from a mutual friend of ours who we both know through school leadership. And he said, if you interview Enid, would you please ask her this question? Enid, what keeps you going for so long working with schools as long as you have on these topics? Well, partially, there are two two answers to that question. I think my understanding of history and its role in change and movement towards justice and human dignity and freedom makes me realize that I have a role to play in this historical process and that I can't um, stop now and that the role I have to play is now and I'm able and I'm here and I'm making sure that I do it so I can't let down the side is one part of it. And the other part is that I really experienced such joy being in school settings. Um, One of the things that I've missed a lot through this pandemic is not being able to visit personally in classrooms, but the the, the life blood of schools, you know, is children. And when I have a chance to interact with them, which I do as I observe, I visit with the principal, I meet with teachers, I see the students on the way to class and so forth, I feel totally energized. I feel as if I were as young as they were, and I'm so glad to have a chance to be connected with them. So those two things, the historical role, the work that I know has to be done and will continue long after I've stopped doing it, but if I don't do the part I need to do, I will have left a gap. And just the joy of being with young people. So... Well, Enid, I am so privileged, and I know Principal Matters listeners are as well, that we've had this opportunity to spend together. And I know you're getting ready to leave this conversation to visit a school today. So I I just want to wrap up by asking you to tell Principal Matters listeners, if they want to reach out and connect with your work and your resources, or maybe even have the opportunity to uh, introduce your resources to their school community, how how can listeners find you? And then, um, and then in closing, just any final thoughts that you might have for, for educators as they think about these important topics of equity? Yeah, so they can find me by going to my web page, um, www.enidlee.com. And particularly if you're interested in these equity cards that I use in schools, you can find information about them there. But they're ones that allow teachers, administrators to look at three aspects of their work, preparation, the implementation and reflection in in doing work around equity at a concrete classroom level. And for instance, at an observational level and so forth, we can also adapt them to um, working with adults in a faculty meeting or parent meeting. So that website is one that you can um, look at. And to say that these are the times for stepping forward with courage and remember from a historical perspective that though many things seem hard and very challenging, they're not entirely new. And we can learn by looking back, not to be held there, but to be pushed forward. And that each of us with collaborating with others can move the systems to greater justice. And every piece of work that we do around human liberation and dignity, we in fact 
help our own our, ourselves in that context. So those are thoughts I have as I leave to go to an interesting school today to look at what's happening there and to support the work of the teachers and engage with students in that setting. Thank you so much for inviting me. Enid Lee, thank you so much for the time that you gave to us this morning and what a rich, rich uh, conversation and what a wealth of experience that you have. And Principal Matters listeners, I know you've benefited from this conversation as well. You can find the links that we've mentioned or the resources we've mentioned in the show notes for this at my website at williamdparker.com for episode 268. Until next time, thank you for doing what matters. And we hope that you have a great week. And thank you, Enid, so much for giving us your time. Thank you for inviting me.